This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. We are back. I am Will and I have been living among the goats. I'll be publishing my memoirs soon. And I'm Leah, a rock with real brand personality. Whatever could these be? Well, if you have a year-long memory, these might seem familiar. If you've not been here before, hi, welcome to the show and the Ig Nobel Prizes! Oh yeah! Yeah! Uh, the annual celebration of all research improbable that makes you laugh and makes you think. It's just the most wonderful time of the year. Unless you're desperately trying to get funding for something that you feel is very important and then you're like, how, how did someone pay for this? There is so much to talk about because the annual prices come with an annual celebration that's held over in America so we couldn't make it, but it has been live-streamed, you can catch up online. But there's a lot of improbable research outlets that you can enjoy this from. You've got us, we're just doing this as fans in the corner, but there's the Ig Nobel Prizes, they have the magazine, the Annals of Improbable Research, a newsletter, a blog, events, research talks, so many ways that you can embrace the best bad science and the worst good science that researchers across the globe have to offer. And we do want to stress that this isn't bad science, it's not science that's done badly, it's science that's done well about unlikely things. Mm -hmm. And that does deserve celebrating. And each year the celebrations of the Ig Nobel Prizes at the annual awards do come with a few little novelties to set them apart from your usual conference. So if you do have a chance to catch up on the webcast, check it out so you can enjoy their own miniature opera, Creatures of Habit. In which a visit to the Museum of Bad Habits explores an old question. Why do people who persistently do bad things keep on doing those bad things? Because they must? Or because they can? It also features a special clicker training operatic appearance by Karen Pryor, who we will get to later. But first, the Ig Nobel Prize's first award was given for medicine to a team from Italy and the Netherlands, and was accepted by author Silvano Gallus, who has spent years, multiple publications, working on the puzzle of Could Pizza Protect You From Cancer? And the conclusion that the team has come to is that pizza might protect against illness and death if it is made and eaten in Italy, which is the most Italian thing I've ever heard. <laughs> we have none of your American pizzas, none of your Turkish pizzas. Only the true Italian pizza has the chemo-preventive properties you may desire. The authors do acknowledge it might also have something to do with the rest of the Mediterranean diet containing olive oil, fish, vegetables, fruit, and the general kind of ease of living. But also the pizza. I like the idea that it's like that thing about Italian cookery of if you haven't gone to Naples this morning to collect this cheese, what's even the point? Unless those tomatoes are grown in my mum's backyard, then f*** you. <laughs> Is it even really pasta sauce? Exactly. You can catch up with some of the papers, such as Pizza Consumption and the Risk of Breast, Ovarian and Prostate Cancer, which was published in 2006, or Pizza and the Risk of Acute Myocardial Infarction. Basically, yeah, the Italians have got a good thing going. Pizza might not be the sole cause of it, but it does seem to have some associations as an agent. <laughs> Just, you know, chill out in the mountains with some pizza and Silvano Gallus, and he can tell you all about what a lovely time you're having and how this is good for your health. Maybe we can get this on prescription. I kind of like the idea that his nana is in the background with 
a huge stack of like prosciutto and olives and oh, it's absolutely. just coming over every five minutes like are you hungry eat please eat for your health <laughs> and this medical prize leads on neatly to the next prize in medical education which features the aforementioned karen Pryor and colleague Teresa mckeon for using clicker training you know like for dogs to train surgeons to perform orthopedic surgery who's a good md who's a good md and we should clarify that it's not like the full orthopedic surgery. They were focusing on two specific behaviours, two surgical techniques. The tying, the locking, sliding knot, useful for doing stitches and kind of sewing people up, and making low-angle drill holes, which were taught to the 2014 postgraduate year one class, first and second year medical students, using this clicker training, which they've termed here as an operant learning procedure incorporating precise scripts along with acoustic feedback. Like with a puppy. Mm-hmm. And the groups that got the clicker training, small groups because it was just a single class for a couple of years, did significantly better. They did honestly so much better than the ones who didn't get the clicker training. This might have to be part of a syllabus from here on out. The control group of 12, only four of them tied the knot and correctly performed the six component steps that make up the textbook manoeuvre. Whereas the group who were receiving the clicker training, all 12 of them performed all six of the steps and tied the knot perfectly. It took them a tiny bit longer? The median time to tie the first knot was longer, whereas the time to tie 10 of the locking sliding knots was the same for both groups. They were a little bit slower to start, but the time they'd done 10 of them, they were caught back up to the control group. So honestly, that's fine. And for the low-angle drill hole test, the test group more consistently achieved the ideal six-step behaviour for precisely drilling a low-hole angle. There was no difference in uh, the mean time between the groups, but they did better in both of these operation procedures, thanks to having someone stood in the back of the room going, click, click, good job. Good job. Good boy. We're going to take you out for so much authentic Italian pizza after this. I expect they didn't quite do that. But I sort of wish they had. Until it can be proven otherwise, that's how I'm going to believe this happened. If Karen Pryor would like to pop along and explain that this was or was not what happened, then you know, do let us know. And also maybe teach you some sort of ideal six-step behaviour. I'm trying to work out what? Probably something cooking-related? I mean, we've been taking dance classes, and that's usually about the six-step procedure. Yeah, but you're doing okay at that. I don't think you need the extra help, whereas... Um... Anyway. From there, we segue neatly, not at all, not even slightly. This one's wildly different. But the biology prize for an international team discovering that dead magnetised cockroaches behave differently than alive magnetised cockroaches. And this is a truly international team. Researchers from Singapore, China, Australia, Poland, America, Bulgaria, all of them working to figure out how the magnetosensing capabilities of a cockroach change when it's dead. It can do less of it, that's for sure. It's certainly less relevant to the cockroach. But cockroaches are one of those animals that seems to be able to sense magnetism. Humans have a bunch of sensors that we're quite good at, we can navigate the world with them, but there are some birds who can hone in on magnetic north, apparently, and navigate that way. I have heard that's how pigeons work. Mm -hmm. Apparently it's how cockroaches work too. 
and the authors in the paper attached to this I think you can get to it without going through a paywall so please do if you can stand to read about this many cockroaches find out about how they present a quantitative method using highly sensitive quantum sensors that extends applicability of magnetorelaxometry to biological samples at physiological temperature which is to say they measure the magnetism of cockroach bits once they're dead and find that once a cockroach has died all of the magnetism kind of flumps out. Maybe it's something about the animal being alive and like the cellular suspension that whatever magnetic particles are responding in has something like coordinate them to poles, but once they're dead, it's much less useful. Doesn't physiological temperature mean like a live temperature? So they've got to be freshly dead or kept in a proving drawer. You don't want to find cockroaches in your proving drawer. That will get you shut down by health and safety. The authors write, To our knowledge, this work represents the first characterization of the magnetization dynamics in live insects and helps to connect results from behavioral experiments on insects and magnetic fields with characterization of magnetic materials in their corpses. So, well done to them. Good job. Have a click. They do mention that their findings might be applied to improve man-made sensors with inspiration from cockroaches. They are very welcome to continue doing that, just as Roger Musset and Boras Bengudafa are very welcome to continue in their anatomy prize-winning research, measuring the scrotal temperature asymmetry in naked and clothed postmen in France. They don't explain why they chose postmen for this research. They did also choose some bus drivers and eight other men whose professions apparently weren't shared with anybody else. To assess if scrotums, as well as being um, generally asymmetrical to look at, are also asymmetrical in their temperature. And apparently they are. Your one ball might hang lower, your one ball might be warmer. Their research was divided into three experiments. The first were those eight unspecified professions, where participants were, quote, submitted to four successive body positions for 15 minutes each, first naked and then clothed. I really hope we're not going to get an explicit tag on iTunes just because of this one piece of anatomy research. That would be unfair. I think we'd only get that if we started speculating about what the positions might be. Let's not. Experiment 2 involved 11 postal employees working in a standing position for 90 minutes continuously. Experiment 3 involved 11 bus drivers and a 90-minute period of continuous driving. The left and right scrotal temperatures were the outcome parameters, and they found that... A lack of thermal symmetry was seen in right and left scrotum, whether naked or clothed. And this applied regardless of position or activity when clothed. So for any of you scrotum-having sorts out there, no matter where you are or what you're doing, there will be a very slight temperature gradient in your pants. And if you have any other suggestions of ridiculous positions for a scrotum to be in, safe for work, please. You can let us know. No, don't send that to eurekanerdcast at gmail.com and I do not want to see any pictures of those indirect messages on our Twitter account, which is eurekanerdcast. You know how he plugged the ways of contacting us so that you can send us those. Please no pictures, though. Please no pictures. How about you monitor the inbox this week? <laughs> how about that? How about we talk less about this admittedly prize-winning research and move on to the chemistry prize instead, from Shigeru Watanabe and his team, who estimated the total saliva production produced per day in five-year-old children. Turns out to be about half a litre-ish. 
if the flow rate is virtually zero during sleep. Because presumably it's not really fair to wake up a five-year-old to see how much they're dribbling in hey. the middle of the night. Hey, hey, kid. Hey, kid. Kid. Vincent's bit. Especially if they're your own children, as Watanabe did attend the ceremony with his adult children who took part in the study 35 years ago. I think it's good to have some kind of recognition of patients' advocacy and involvement, and they can come and participate in the award ceremony as well. I oh, think that's absolutely. very progressive. I think that's very appropriate, hmm. but also might have contributed to the decision not to wake the children up in the middle of the night. Because can you imagine having to explain that decision to your co-parent? I'm just picturing the announcement across the dinner table of, oh, by the way, remember that really weird thing we did 30 years ago? Pack your bags. We're going to America to accept a prize. For your mouth juices. Might have been an awkward flight. Ah, uh, he's their dad. They're probably used to it. Mm. Speaking of parental relationships, the engineering prize goes to Iman Farabaksh for inventing a diaper-changing machine for use on human infants. The link here doesn't go to a paper so much as it goes to the patent application, which please do go and look at because it's a dishwasher with stirrups. At least I hope it's not a literal dishwasher. We've spent a lot of time developing health and safety so that children don't get massive scald scars. Maybe there's more thermal regulation. There seems to be a shelf on top for, like, dusting and drying, but it's a box with a washer in, and you just kind of insert the child. In fact, we can quote from the patent application directly. The main chamber is configured to receive an infant therein. The seat is movably coupled to the main chamber and configured for the placement of infant on the seat. The sprinkler is placed inside the main chamber and configured to spray water to wash at least a portion of the infant. It's possible this is more useful if you can't use your hands? Or if you have to wash a bunch of babies. If you're on like some kind of industrial scale diaper changing situation. A multi-fitting so that you can accommodate your triplets all at once. Mm. An extra shelf for cutlery at the bottom. Oh, oh no. <laughs> oh no. That is essentially washing the cutlery in the toilet, no. Moving on from that slightly gross, possibly covered in faecal matter research, to the economics prize, which this year... Is also gross and covered in faecal matter. That's just economics for you. The researchers from Turkey, the Netherlands and Germany conducted their research on money, like the physical artefact of having cash in your hand, as a vector for bacterial infections, including Staphylococcus aureus, E. coli, and vancomycin-resistant enterococci, or VRE. They also checked in on the survival of extended-spectrum beta-lactamases, or ESBL, and MRSA. Turns out there are some monies in the world that are just dangerous to handle. Handling the Romanian loo is just a huge biological risk. It retains a lot of bacteria and transmits it to other people's hands really well. It's, it's, whatever it's made of, bacteria love it. It's basically the prize winner, but presumably that means the population of Romania have got, like, really strong stomachs. Very hardy immune systems, possibly. Mm. Not a lot of food poisoning, because it's always on the money. By comparison, the Croatian Kuna was found to not allow the growth of any multidrug-resistant organisms that were involved in the test. On other currencies tested, which included Canadian and US dollars, euros, and Indian rupees, they all either enabled the survival of ESBL and VRE, or MRSA. It was never both. Must be something in them as a growth medium to allow one to flourish and not the other. 
I found the most interesting part of this was that the plastic polymer notes that we have for five and ten pound notes here in the UK, and that make up a lot of the Canadian and Australian money as well, are very accommodating growth mediums for bacterial infection, more so than some of the fabric or linen or paper currencies that were tested. It is something that people often mention, that lots of money has got traces of drugs on it. Now, you know, it's also got traces of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, so uh, wash your hands. Wash your hands, and if you are the kind of person who will also use your money for administering cocaine, um, wash, wash your money first as well, because that is a hell of a way to get sinusitis. Yeah, you really don't want to inhale MRSA. That's, if anything, the take-home lesson from this episode. Hey, kids, don't inhale MRSA. Your pals at Eureka Nerd. Especially if you have the polymer money, you can you can just wash it. If you're sloping off to a pub toilet, just give it a quick rinse. Just soap that boy up before you roll it up, before you lay out your lines. <laughs> Maybe that should be the advertising campaign. Like, see it, say it, sorted, soap it up, roll it up. Of course, I guess if you're doing your lines off the cistern of a toilet, you're already putting yourself at risk. But oh, oh, putting so many things into your sinuses. I don't know who out there in our listener base needs to hear this, but this one's for you, I guess. <laughs> anyway, on to more pleasurable research. The Peace Prize, which is what you'd hope to be the nicest part of any research celebration. The research into peace, well-being, happiness. And what in the world could be better for any of these than, like, scratching a really good itch? I think the fun thing about this piece of research is that participants weren't allowed to scratch their own itches in order for it to be consistent. <laughs> it had to be a scratcher for any scratchy. And it, one of the investigators had to come along with a cytology brush to ensure consistent itch scratching. For science. For science. Now, I'm going to quote from the uh, article abstract here because I think they term it in a very succinct manner. Scratching an itch is perceived as being pleasurable. Correct, yes. However, an analysis of topographical variations in itch intensity, the effectiveness of scratching provide itch relief, and the associated pleasurability has not been performed at different body sites. So whilst we might all accept the idea of scratching an itch as nice, no one's tested which itch where on who. Turns out itches on your ankle are more intense and harder to scratch. Whereas itches on your back are less intense, but provide the most relief when you mm. scratch them. Or you can get right up on a doorframe or something and, like, get in there. We've all had that moment of turning to a friend, or possibly even a stranger, in a public place and saying, this is going to sound weird, but could you, like, scratch my back right under the shoulder blade? Like, get in, oh, oh, thank you. I just you start melting in public. I tend to just contort myself awkwardly, and, and then people are like, how are you reaching that? And I'm like, ah. That works too, as long as you get that satisfaction, I suppose. And our thanks do go to the international team from the UK, from Saudi Arabia, from Singapore, and the USA for really putting the work in here and satisfying this research itch, I guess. But also for making me think too much about itching so that now I'm itchy. Oh yeah, my shoulders are burning up back there. But we've got two more prizes to get through. So, let's celebrate the winner of the Psychology Prize, Fritz Strack, who, in his long years of research and contributing to the scientific community, first discovered that holding a pen in one's mouth makes one smile, 
which makes one happier, and then discovered that it doesn't. I know I heard about this one via a one-show item featuring two groups of people being sat down for a comedy set in the middle of the day with some holding the pen in their mouth sideways, some holding it long ways so that they were all puckered up around it. And, I mean, apparently their small version of this experiment showed that the people with the pen in their mouth sideways so that they were smilier found things more funny. But subsequent replications of this study have found that it it doesn't really work. There are two papers referenced here. The first of Fritz Strank's initial publication, that holding a pen sideways in your mouth makes you smilier and therefore happier. And then a second from 2017, From Data to Truth in Psychological Science, a Personal Perspective, published in Frontiers in Psychology, in which Strack writes, The pen study was meant neither to demonstrate acute phenomenon nor identify a powerful intervention to improve people's feelings. Instead, it was intended to be one piece in the theoretical puzzle. In 2013, I volunteered to be part of a registered replication report project and submitted the experimental materials. In 2016, the results came out. 17 replication groups had tested 1,894 participants. For nine groups, the result was in the predicted direction. For eight groups, the opposite direction. Which means overall there was no significant effect. Good on Strack for standing up and acknowledging that the research that he was part of has not been able to be reproduced, and that we should not rely on it going forwards. The rest of the paper does delve into kind of his personal take on the reproducibility crisis in psychology and in science, and he spends some time insisting that we shouldn't spend too long digging into the small, underreported effects and focus on the big ones, which does maybe sound like a little bit of a bruised ego, but he has taken this one on the chin, so a prize for him. And we have mentioned the reproducibility problem before, and the fact that lots of studies no one is trying to replicate them to double-check the results, but that is, you know, a fundamental part of the scientific method, is checking. So let's keep trying to reproduce studies and see what happens. Be like Strack. And now for the final prize, and I don't know whether this is my favourite of this year's, but it's a... It feels like the most Ig Nobel one. It's got some really fantastic features, which we'll get into. This is the Physics Prize awarded to another international team for studying how and why wombats make cube-shaped poo. And while we're here, let's acknowledge that two of the researchers involved in this, Patricia Yang and David Hu, have won an Ig Nobel Prize before. They shared the 2015 Ig Nobel Physics Prize with two other colleagues for testing the biological principle that nearly all mammals empty their bladders in about 21 seconds, plus or minus 13 seconds. Real achievements in the field of the physics of excretion. I think if you can say that you're a two-time Ig Nobel Prize winner for your work on animal digestion and excretion, uh, you win every dinner party conversation there is. Who's going to top that? Should be able to eat out on that for life. As long as you wash your hands and don't pay with Romanian loo. So, why do wombats have cube-shaped poo? Well, their intestines make it that way, is kind of the conclusion here. They assessed the inner workings of several wombats who were euthanized following car crashes in Tasmania, Australia, and found that 
in the lower portion of the intestine, about the final 8% or so, waste matter is converted from a liquid phase to a solid phase. The unusual thing about the wombat intestines is that they inflate unevenly. Our intestines, other animals' intestines, are tubular, nice round tube. Wombat intestines have basically some tension so that they come up square and that produces the cube-shaped booze. So the next time someone says, oh, do you know that wombats have cube-shaped poo? You can tell them, yes, and I know why. And they'll look at you with suspicion and fear. Or wide-eyed wonder. For more on animal scatological research, do check out the book Does It Fart? by Danny Rabbiotti and her upcoming sequel, True or Poo, which features much more exploration of the hows and whys and smells of that end of an animal. Perhaps one day she too will be an Ig Nobel Prize winner, but our thanks do go again to all of the winners from this year's festival, especially two-time winner David Hugh and Patricia Yang, and to Karen Pryor for her participation in the opera with her little clicker session there. And of course to Improbable Research for putting this together and giving us something to talk about. Again, check out the web stream. If you would like to tell us what you think should be an Ig Nobel Prize winning piece of research, you can send that to us at EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. That's EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. Please don't send us any of your gross pictures of animal poo or your assessments of the temperatures inside of your pants, because I do not think that if you try and submit that on Facebook, which is forward slash EurekaNerd, it will go very well at all. If you want to send us money instead, you can do that at Kofi.com forward slash EurekaNerd. But that's all for the Ig Nobel Prizes. Our next episode, which will be coming online in two weeks' time, is one that we recorded last week because we're going to be uh, getting married that weekend and we're going to be a little bit busy. So we're going to have some back-to-school science for you coming real soon. And with that, that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. very slight temperature gradient in your pants. Excuse me, sir, could you please uh, take your trousers off and do me a downward dog? Um, 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 I, oh no, no, that's, oh no. You said we couldn't speculate on, no. <laughs> I was trying to think of the most ridiculous position for a nude scrotum to be in, and I think that's quite a contender. Cartwheels. Difficult to measure the temperature of the scrotum while it's flying through the air? Get one of those laser thermometers and try and pick them off like hot shots. Just pew pew. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network. <laughs>